Welcome to episode four of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever competitive practice of law. Each episode is submitted for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details available at kylawshow.com. Today I'm interviewing the Honorable Thomas Carrick of Carrick Backert in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mr. Carrick represents both plaintiffs and defendants in civil claims, including personal injury, products liability, professional liability, and insurance litigation. Tom is currently serving as a president of the Kentucky Bar Association and has served as a special justice to the Kentucky Supreme Court. He even got to write the opinion. Tom's also active in the Bowling Green community, serving on various boards and being a little league coach for many sports. Here's my interview with Tom. Okay, Mr. Carrick, tell us about your practice. Well, I've been doing it for 40 years now, which is hard to believe. Um, I do basically all litigation and we do more of it from the defense, uh, a lot of med mal defense, professional liability, uh, some products, liability, construction work, of course, automobile accidents. Uh, but it's a general litigation practice for myself. We have about 11, 12 attorneys in the firm and between all of us here, we do, we do everything except we don't really do much criminal law and we don't do uh, much family law. So other than that, we're a general practice in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, Bowling Green's a great growing community. And um, so we like being here. We've also got an office in Elizabethtown, which is my hometown. And uh, we do some work up there for various clients. And uh, so we do mainly South Central Kentucky, Western Kentucky, um, do some in Louisville, some over in Eastern Kentucky, but um, and depends on the client too. Some clients send us all over the state. But so me personally, it's a general litigation practice. Excellent. And, and one of the things I read about you in your bio is that you also take plaintiff's cases, which I think is a yeah. little bit unusual. Um, at least it's getting that way. Well, it, it is. Uh, back when I started a number of years ago, it wasn't that unusual to see someone, particularly in a smaller town, uh, do some defense and also do some plaintiff's work. Um, in the larger cities, you really don't see that. You generally have to choose. Of course, I don't sue my defense clients. <laughs> right. Uh, but... Uh, no, what happened when I came back and started trying cases, uh, I guess I got a reputation for uh, kind of trying cases. And I had two or three attorneys, friends that would get uh, plaintiff's cases in that they just didn't do trial work. So then they would send those cases to me and um, would generally work them up, try them. And I really enjoyed representing the individuals. That's not to say I didn't, I don't mind, uh, defending corporations and uh, insurance companies uh, also. But, you know, when you, when you have an individual, uh, you probably affect their life a little bit more than you do the corporation. How do you think that that experience on both sides in, informs your practice, I guess, both as a plaintiff's lawyer and as a defense attorney? 
Well, I do think it's helped. Uh, one thing I've I've been involved with, uh, you know, KJA used to be called Kentucky Academy Trial Lawyers. They do a great job with their attorneys, put, up, put on some of the best seminars in the state. Uh, also been involved with Kentucky Defense Council and uh, you know, national defense organizations. So I, I go to those seminars. So I kind of learn issues from both sides. But I think more than anything else, it's just, you know, you learn to navigate the cases through both sides. And uh, I've also done some mediation, uh, you know, where I'm the third party neutral. I think it's helped me from that perspective uh, and that I understand both sides. You know, some attorneys get locked into one side or the other, and they really don't think the other side is very reasonable or, uh, you know, they just get locked into that position, same position every time. I think it's, I mean, I've always kind of thought of myself as a fairly reasonable guy, but I do think it helps you understand issues on both sides of the case and it probably helps me to be a little more reasonable in working through issues with my clients on either side. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, I know a lot of great criminal defense lawyers. Like that's what I practice who um, used to be prosecutors. And I think that that really can help, you know, improve your perspective. Now, I, I never was a prosecutor. I've been doing this the whole time, but uh, I have come around as I've gotten older to become more reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I definitely see age teaches us that sometime, you know, it, it sure <laughs> does. And it, I definitely see the value in being reasonable and being able to assess a case from both perspectives. So I think you touched on this a little bit, but why don't you tell us about how you got started with your practice and trying cases and that kind of thing? Well, it was actually pretty interesting. I'll go back a little bit before that. Uh, went to UK for undergrad, got a uh, accounting degree in 1977, graduated from UK law in 1980 and came to Bowling Green. But when I was getting my accounting degree, after I had some tax classes and so forth, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go to law school and become a tax attorney. I was the first uh, kid out of our family that thought about going to law, didn't have any lawyers in the family. And uh, I don't know why I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. I just thought I'd be a lawyer. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go to law school to be a tax attorney. So it was my first semester of my second year of law school. I had my first real tax class and it was like, man, it was like Greek to me. It was unbelievably hard, probably my worst grade in law school. Anyway, after that class, I thought, well, Carrie, man, you have screwed up now. What are you going to do? <laughs> and I kind of uh, floundered the uh, rest of my second year thinking what I'm going to do. And then my third year, I uh, got into a lit skills class where, you know, they teach us to try cases and, and do other everyday things, <clears throat> which I really liked. And uh, Pete Perlman was my instructor from in Lexington. And Pete was an excellent instructor, excellent trial lawyer, and uh, just really kind of lit my fire to be in the courtroom. And after that, that's what I knew I wanted to be. So then when I came to Bowling Green, uh, it was with a, <clears throat> it was with a two man firm. One of the partners did a lot of litigation and uh, the other partner did a lot of real estate. Well, 
after I was with them for a while, I come, I came to find out that they were splitting my salary equally, but I was doing basically a hundred percent litigation. <laughs> and even though the, the one older partner had taught me how to do a title, I've never run a title to this day. So I think they had to go back and adjust my salary after a little bit, but I just, I came to Bowling Green, uh, the partner that I worked for at that point in time, Joe Bill Campbell did all litigation and he just kind of, at the time, uh, maybe threw me to the wolves a little bit. He went to one trial with me. Uh, after that, it was on my own. And back in those days, you know, you, you really had trials. I mean, I probably had, I don't know. I don't know. It seemed like I would have eight to 10 trials a year for probably four or five years when I was first getting going. And, and not all those were big trials, but, uh, you know, they were, they would require you to pick a jury, you know, make opening statements, make closing arguments, cross-examine witnesses, present your evidence. And just, I mean, it just, every time, you know, you're on your feet in the courtroom, it just helps you be more comfortable uh, with what you're doing. And so, as we said earlier, you got to where I was trying, trying a bunch of cases and other people started realizing that. And um, that got me into the plaintiff side. I still have a few plaintiffs, but not, not many today, quite frankly. Um, so uh, that's how it all got started. That's, that's great. That's great. I think that trial experience is just tremendously hard to get anymore. You know, it, it is terrible for young people. I mean, I tried a number of just property damage cases, you know, car accidents, who had the red light, um, whatever early on. And, uh, you know, now today, I mean, the insurance companies just don't even litigate those cases. They just can't afford to do it. And it's really difficult for young people to uh, get trial experience. I mean, I know, I mean, we bring people in now and where it used to be, they would try cases, you know, in the first few years. And well, of course the pandemic hadn't helped, but uh, you know, it's just, I'd say last year, I probably tried two cases. One was before the bench and uh, you know, it's more like one or two cases a, a year now that I actually try. And it's, it's kind of hard to explain to people when you, well, you, what do you do, Tom? Well, I'm a trial lawyer. Oh yeah. Well, well how many cases did you try last year? Well, I tried one, <laughs> you know, and they think, well, that doesn't, uh, doesn't sound like a trial lawyer to me. No. And, and I think that, you know, as criminal lawyers, you know, we have this reputation for, I think at least still trying cases, but I mean, even in my busiest year, I think I had five. And so, yeah. and that was 2019. Um, but I, I've been lucky enough, you know, as a young lawyer, you know, I, I, I did the public defender for four years here in Lexington and I got to have about 20 to 30 trials that, that way. And that's been, it's just tremendously helpful if yeah. you're, if you've got that's, that experience, it's just, well, and that's about the only way you get experience these days. You, you generally have to go criminal way and either you're prosecuting and you're in court or you're, like I said, a public defender. And I know a number of, uh, younger people that, you know, want to get into the courtroom and want to litigate. And that's what they've had to do. So I compliment you on that. I think that will be uh, something you look back on and say that was really helpful. It, it already is something that I've just been tremendously thankful for. And, um, you know, they did a great job training me. Um, switching back to you, Mr. Carrick, um, what's one thing you wish you'd known when you began your career? <laughs> 
uh, how hard we were going to work. <laughs> it's like, uh, oh, my gosh. You know, you just really kind of have to put your heart, body, and soul in it. And uh, it it's a lot of hard work. I mean, I know the perception out there is, uh, oh, all these attorneys, they keep bankers' hours and go in at nine and come home at three and make all this money and life's great. Um, I'm not going to complain about my life because that's worked out really well, but uh, it is hard work. And, you know, most attorneys that I know work hard and if they, you know, can if they keep it to a 40 hour week, they're doing good. And as you know, if you've got a trial, that's probably at least a 60 hour to 80 hour week. And, uh, you know, it, it is very, can be very demanding, which takes away from family time, wife, kids, things you enjoy. And you just have to keep it all in, in perspective. And hopefully when you get a bit of a slow time, you can go on a vacation, take some time off, whatever. But I wish I'd known how hard we were going to work. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to speak to that a little bit, as far as how much we work during trial, like I, I look forward to like the the small ones, you know, like if it's like a one, two, three, four, even a five day trial. Mm -hmm. But if you go into that second week and you've got to work on that weekend, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. what kills me. I don't know why, but. Well, I've always, I've always told people trying cases is like being on vacation because if you've got a week long trial, that's all you're going to work on. Mm -hmm. And that's all you can think about. So you might as well be on vacation because everything else is sitting on your desk or waiting for you to get back. Now, you know, the other thing I laugh about on trials, uh, when I try them in Bowling Green, which is my home, uh, you know, it does seem a little harder to get away from, from everything else because you still got clients calling and stuff coming in. Whereas if I, you know, if I go to Louisville and try a case for a week, I'm, I'm really kind of out of the office. Um, and I can just focus on that, on that case. So while I, I, I like trying them at home because I can be at home at night, and I think it is a little more, uh, well, just time consuming and, uh, and a little bit more awkward, but you know, I, I haven't said all that. I, I still love trials. I, I love, trial work. Uh, I love going in the courtroom. I love, uh, you know, making arguments to the jury. As I said, I've always kind of thought of myself as a reasonable person. And I think, you know, I think jurors, uh, for the most part are reasonable, common sense people. Uh, you know, I've seen some good trial lawyers kind of I don't know if I want to say talk down to jurors, but, you know, think they're going to be smarter than the jury and get certain points by them. And, you know, it doesn't happen because somebody out of that 12 is going to question something. And uh, so I really, I really enjoy uh, doing the trial work. Absolutely. I mean, my view on juries is you can't ever predict what crazy things they're going to think about but you can't really slip anything by them either. They're going to catch you. And if, if you try to do it, if you try to be too slick anyway. So, I mean, just in, in my experience and, you know, yeah. and that's what I tell all my clients, you know, if they ever 
you know, tell me that they're, you know, maybe going to change their statement, we'll say, from what they told the police. I'll say, well, the jury's going to know you did that and they're going to know why. And it's not just it's not just good ethics not to put your client on that's going to say something that may, may be a embellishment, we'll say. It's it's good sense because I think the jury knows when somebody is not telling the truth, whether it be, you know, a, a complaining witness in one of my cases or a plaintiff or, you know, whoever in one of yours. So I, I think that try to find a way in, in your case to, you know, have that theory of your case that rings true. Well, and I think that's exactly right. And then I think you on on arguments and so forth, you just have to be reasonable. You know, some some trial lawyers will tell you, you know, you don't concede anything to the other side. You, you don't even tell the other side they did a good job at, you know, at the end of the case when you stand up and do closing argument. You don't concede any, don't concede anything. Um, <laughs> I've tried that before. And talking to jurors afterwards, the first thing one of them said to me was, Mr. Carrick, the other attorney complimented you during his closing argument, and you didn't compliment the other attorney. <laughs> I said, well, you're right, I didn't, and uh, I probably should have. But what I was going to say is I, I think jurors um, reward you for reasonable arguments and concessions. I mean, if you're, you, you take them too far out there on the limb that nobody's going to believe you on that argument, then they're not going to believe you on the other arguments that you are trying to be believable on. So uh, I think, again, a lot of it comes back to reasonableness, common sense, and uh, uh, jurors are smarter than I think we give them credit for. You can have the most eloquent argument. You can have the most sonorous voice. But if it's not based in fact on some level, if there's no meat on the bone, they're going to see through you. I mean, I I I think that's, it is, it is what it is. Uh, Agreed. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? <laughs> Be ready to work hard. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, that's, you know, starting over now and getting in litigation, like you say, I mean, it's really hard to get litigation experience these days. Um, you know, even these, trial lawyers at, at large firms really don't have that many trials under their belt. And, um, you know, probably the advice I would give is, you know, if you want to be a trial lawyer, you need to go somewhere where you can get experience on your feet in court. Um, even if it's not, uh, full trials, even you can get in there and, and cross examine a witness here and there or make arguments to the judge and, and so forth. Just, just remember that the first four or five years where you're getting your experience will hopefully help you the, the next 20 years of your career. And so if you have to sacrifice a little bit first to get the experience, I'd say it'd be well worth it. Absolutely. Um, I'd agree with all that. And it's just, it's just hard to get into right now just because it's just, just, it's not only it's a dying art or anything like that. We're still going to have trials and, you know, I imagine a lot of people are in alternative dispute resolution, arbitration, you know, that has similar features to a trial more and more, but uh, you know, just getting in there and questioning witnesses in whatever kind of hearings you can have. And I think particularly for young lawyers, not being afraid to lose, I think is, is important, particularly in, in my line of work, you want to do right by your client, of course, 
but you can't worry about nobody's perfect. Um, you know, I guess maybe Jerry Spence said he was, but, uh, I don't <laughs> said it, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, I can remember a time when, uh, it never fails when you, when you try a case and the jury goes out, then it's like, okay, what's the jury going to do? And you're sitting there talking with your, your colleagues or the court personnel or your paralegal, someone, whatever. And it got to where if I felt like I did a good job and should win, I, I was losing that case. And if I didn't feel like I did that good, then I was winning that case. It got to the point where I was scared to feel anything when the jury went out. Cause, <laughs> and, and so I really, after so many years, I just, started saying, you know, look, we've, we've put the best case we can forward. Uh, jury's going to decide how they're going to decide. And so I tried to quit predicting what they were, what they were going to do. Cause I mean, while, while we like to tell our clients that we have some idea, I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is we can't make any guarantees and, and we don't know. And it, it depends the the 12 people you get in the box that day. You know, I've, so, I've told clients, look, we could try the same case in front of 12 different people. And we're going to get a completely opposite result. Um, so it just depends on the 12 people you put on the box to, to try your case. And you gonna get me off on another little theory, Brad, but, uh, go ahead. You know, I think the other thing in trying cases is, um, in picking the jury, you want to look for your leaders because, you know, you have 12 people go back there and decide while the judge tells them, okay, everybody have your say. Uh, if we've talked to many jurors, uh, we know it's generally two or three people that, that lead the conversation. And as they go around the table, Miss Smith may say, well, I, I don't really have anything to say, but I agree with Mr. Jones over there. And, you know, somebody else agrees with Bob and, but it's really, I think the, the leaders, uh, that go back there in the courtroom that's going to pick up your side of the argument or the other side's argument and convince those jurors to go whichever way they do. So um, I think it's really important in picking a jury that you try to identify your leaders and the ones that are going to be the talkers uh, back in the back and not just talkers, but also the, the leaders um, because then they can sway Hopefully you convince them and then they go back and convince the other jurors that may not be on your side when they first come back in the jury room. And, and I find that when you're picking the jury, most of the time you have a pretty good idea who's going to end up being your four person. As soon as, you know, the judge does the poll and like you get your final 12 with your alternates, you have a pretty good idea who the four person is going to be, at least in my experience. And whether that whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, at least based upon if if you got enough out in voir dire anyway. Well, then you know it's always a good feeling too when you know you've got this this juror going with you, and they're following everything you say, and then lo and behold, boom, they're the one picked out of the hat as the alternate, and it's like, oh my gosh. So <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the worst. Or when that person that like stared you down the entire trial comes back out and they've got the jury paper and you know that, you know, they're the four person and they're about to read yeah. the verdict. Like, yeah. Well, I, then the other thing, the other thing, Brad, uh, 
and I've gotten to where I, I don't talk to those alternates now when they are knocked off because, you know, it used to be people would get knocked off. I'd have my paralegal or me or somebody try to run them down the hallway and talk to them. And lots of times they would come back with the opposite of what the jury actually did. And I uh-huh. think it was just because, you know, they were thinking a certain way after the evidence was concluded, but before they went back to listen to their co-jurors uh, discuss the issues. And, uh, you know, I don't have any study on that. How many jurors change their mind from when they leave the, the jury box and go to the deliberation room? Uh, how many are convinced to, to go the other way? But um, I'm, I'm sure a number of them are. So uh, I've quit asking the alternate to what, what they think. <laughs> the way I see it, Thomas, I just think about how did I do last time? You know, how good were my arguments? How good was my cross-examination? How good was my direct? How good was I in jury selection? And did I do those things better this time, just in an abstract way? And I just, I, I don't let the, I don't let the verdict bother me. It's easy to say, I've, I've won a lot of cases recently, so it's easy for me to say that. But that being said, I think ultimately, if you want to do this job and you want to remain sane, you have to divorce yourself from the outcomes and not that our clients want to hear that, but really focus on the process and doing a better job at each of the individual components. At least that's, that's my philosophy. No, I I agree with that. You know, I I wish I could tell everybody that I've never lost a case and that's just not the way it's going to be for trial lawyers because you know, you're going to go try some that you're not going to win and, uh, and you're going to go try some you think you're going to win. You're not going to win. Um, so I guess moral of the story, you try enough, you're going to lose some. And uh, you're right. You just have to have faith in yourself, continue to believe you're doing the right thing and and keep plowing away. Absolutely. What are some of the resources that you look to, books, conferences, groups, uh, Internet, uh, that have helped you along the way that you think could help a young lawyer or really anybody trying to improve their practice? Well, as I said, my lit skills class was very good. Pete Perlman was one, and then Savage and Moore was one. And I, I took a lot from, from them. When I came out, um, you know, I would try to watch some trials locally uh, to see how people did things, went to seminars, went to a couple of trial seminars, actually. One was at UK that was about a week-long period, which was really good, intense. Um so, I mean, I, that's probably been the best resource for me. You know, what I've, I think what I've learned from that is when you try cases or, or when you handle depositions or anything, just dealing with people, um, you got to be yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Jerry Spence. Well, we can all watch those videos and, you know, some people think, okay, I'm going to go be Jerry Spence. Well, you know, not too many people can pull that off. Right. And uh, so, you know, at seminars I attended, you know, the first few trials I was going to be Pete Perlman or I was going to be whoever. Um, but then I, you know, came to learn that I really didn't didn't like that certain thing or, or this. And I think you just kind of take a, a piece here and a piece there from – experienced attorneys, experienced lawyers, and try to incorporate it into how you handle it. And it might be a little differently, but 
I'm sure even yourself, I mean, you're, you're, you're falling into kind of how you like to do trials, how you like to handle experts, how you like to do board hire, opening, closing, that kind of stuff. And uh, not to say you shouldn't con always continue to, to try to improve and make things better. Uh, Cause I think you should, but I also think you, you really need to be yourself and don't try to, to be someone you're not because the juries are going to see through that too, that you're not, you're not comfortable with that style. You're not comfortable with those, you know, with that argument. So, uh, you asked me about resources and somehow I got to just being yourself. Well, no. I, I think that's good. I mean, I think that's a good point. And I mean, if I could just kind of unpack that a little bit, I mean, I think what I can relate to is, you know, going to those that, you know, you said you went to that week long trial conference, mm -hmm. I think doing that when I was young, I got to go to a couple things like that. Like I actually, I went to Jerry Spence's ranch. That's one thing I've done for when I was doing death penalty work and I did, I went there for a week. And then I got also to go to New York and work with the innocence project for a week too, learning forensic science, DNA, finger, fingerprints, you know, gunshot mm -hmm. residue, whatever, all of that. And really those like intensive experiences like that are like NCDC, the national criminal defense college used to be in Macon. Right going and doing those kinds of like extra that taking that extra step to continue education and going to conferences and honestly, you know, teaching is another thing, you know, like teaching CLE has been a great benefit to me because I think if you can teach something, then you really know it. And so I've, I've really liked doing right. that. Right. But, I agree. But, um, you know, to go back to your point about being yourself, I remember, um, when I was just a very young lawyer, I had, I don't think I'd had a trial at that point. This very tall man came into the courtroom and he was wearing a straw hat. And I didn't know, you know, being, I'm from Russellville, Kentucky, from Western Kentucky, South Central Kentucky, whatever you want to call it. There you go. And uh, I, I didn't know who he was, but he came up to me and he shook my hand in his big booming voice. And he said, son, are you new around here? I'm Gatewood Galbraith and I want to give you a copy of my book. And so he went out to his car and he got me a copy of his book. I don't know. You've probably heard of it or seen it or, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, and he signed it. And there's a chapter in there where he talks about, you know, what he would do in Wadir as far as the questions he would ask. And there were some really good ones, but some of them, like you said, only get only Jerry Spence could do. Well, some of them only Gatewood could do. So, um, I didn't read his book, but I can imagine those questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did, I, I did learn a lot from going to watch him at trial though. You know, I saw him have a couple of trials before he passed and then uh, just watching other, other good trial attorneys was a, was a huge resource for me. Yeah. No substitute for experience. I don't care what you do. I mean, there's just no substitute for experience. And the, the more you can get the motion air, the more you can take depositions, the more you can do things. I think it just helps you fine tune your other skills for litigation. Yeah, even if it's just volunteering to second or third or whatever a trial, just to get in there and get the adrenaline flowing, get your fight or flight. I mean, I, even now, I mean, I still get it a little bit. I mean, I don't think it ever yeah. really does. It ever really go away? I don't think so, uh, and I hope not. But you know, uh, it really is kind of unusual in, in cases. You know, in some trials, at least from the civil side. We want to go in and we just want to be quiet. We don't want anybody to even think we're there. We don't want to be in the front of the jury. We, 
as uh, one older attorney uh, used to call it here, it's like going to church. I'm going to sit on the back row so nobody sees me. And uh, and it's kind of it's kind of hard every now and then to do that because you know somebody's cross examining a witness and and you're thinking, man, I could really nail this point in there, but sometimes you just have to sit and be quiet and uh, do the best for your client and not bring attention to them. And so th does that ever go away? I don't know. I don't think so. Cause I still get fired up for trials, you know, back when, back when I played sports, it was, you know, Friday was game day and, you know, Saturday was game day and it still kind of feels a little bit like game day. Uh, it just gets me fired up and I, I, I enjoy it. So it's, I hope I don't lose the fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's an unusual feeling, right? Because you're ostensibly, you're sitting there in a chair for eight hours, but your, your heart rate's elevated and you're as focused as you're ever going to be on anything. Like you said, like if you're, you know, going to play, a, play a game or whatever, like, you know, you're, you're in it. I mean, at least for me, and I, like, like you said, I hope that continues as, as stressful and as unnerving as it can be. I don't think you can do, I don't think there's any other way you can do it. I don't, yeah. I've never seen anybody do it any other way. Well, and you know, I, I think it, it takes a certain personality to do it. Uh, I've seen, you know, over the years, a number of good trial lawyers finally just get to the point where they say, look, I just, I just don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just too much stress for me to, to handle when I go through one of these trials. I remember one guy told me that you know, 20 years ago, and I thought, you got to be kidding me, because he looked like one of the most relaxed guys in the courtroom. And, uh, I mean, he told me that, and he, he didn't try anything after that. Um, hmm. So it's just, it's, I do think a certain personality to where, you know, if you lose, it's, it's going to kind of roll off of you for, you know, we all hate to lose and we try to learn from it. And, uh, just like we do our victories, but there's a certain amount that you've just got to, to let go. Uh, if you're going to be a trial lawyer, it's like the quarterback that threw an interception the last time down the field, like you've got to just go back out there like it didn't happen. Yeah, got to throw another one next time you're out. You're right, because uh, got to keep going. <laughs> well, Tom, um, I think I've already told our listeners this, but this year you're the KBA president. Um, we've got the KBA annual convention coming up. Um, what can you tell me about it? Why should we go? Well, we, uh, we're holding out. The, the KBA annual convention is generally in June. And this year it was going to be in May due, uh, due to a scheduling conflict. And of course, with the pandemic, we were holding out as long as we could, hoping it would be in person because we've never had a virtual uh, convention. Well, this year we had to go ahead and make some plans in, in January. So we had to go ahead and declare it was going to be all virtual. Um, it's generally three days. It's the Kentucky annual convention is a, pretty large event. We have about 2000 attorneys attend that every year and not, and most States do not have a, an annual convention or if they do, they're on a much smaller basis. Uh, I know somebody used to tell me we had the second largest annual mm -hmm. convention compared to Texas. Now, I don't know if that's still true, but uh, we have a pretty large annual convention. So we, we couldn't do it this year. So it's gotta be virtual. 
It's uh, May 12, 13, and 14. We try to bring in a feature speaker each day. We got fantastic speakers this year. I, I mean, we really do. On, uh, on Wednesday at noon, uh, we've got the author of Chicago 7 coming. And uh, I don't read that many books. I'd rather watch the movie. But if you haven't seen the movie, I'd encourage you to watch the, the trial of the Chicago 7 in the late 60s. And uh, obviously Chicago mm -hmm. uh, has a lot of the trial scenes in it. I don't know if you've seen it, Brad, but uh, the, the federal judge in there does not really look very good. Uh, and, uh, I heard it was pretty accurate. So, but anyway, it, it's a very good movie, good story. I mean, truth. Um, so we, we have the author for that coming on Wednesday and then on Thursday, I'm really looking forward to this. We've got, uh, Mary Madeline and James Carville, the two political, uh, analysts. One's the Republican and one's the defend or the Democrat, and they've been married for years. So they're going to come and tell us what all is fair and love, war and politics. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one. And then on Friday, we've been after this guy for a number of years. We've not been able to get him, but uh, we finally got Jay Billis, uh, the NCA announcer, uh, who is an attorney, mm -hmm. uh, to come and speak and. We really hate that these national speakers that we have gotten are going to have to be virtual because we we really think we would have set the record uh, this year for attendance. And uh, part of that is because last year we had to cancel our. I was going to say you you still might. We need a, people need a lot of hours. So <laughs> yeah, well that's true. But uh, you know I've come. As somebody said the other day, if you can't. If you get dealt lemons, try to make lemonade. So uh, I was really disappointed and upset that we couldn't do this in person for a while. And now uh, the convention committee and, and KBA staff has just done a great job of getting these people in here. And um, so that's going to be good. And then not only do we have these national speakers, but then we've got, you know, statewide interested speakers or regional speakers that are coming. Um, one individual's coming is, oh gosh, forgot his name, but he is in-house counsel for a hockey team. Hmm. Uh, so he's going to come talk to us about what he does every day, how he uses his, uh, law degree and experience with regard to a professional, uh, hockey team. Uh, and then we're going to have, uh, you know, just other seminar type issues that hopefully the bar can relate to. And, uh, so we're, we're optimistic. It's going to be good. You know, one thing that we think with, uh, zoom and doing these things virtual, lots of times you would tend to see the same people at the convention every year. Uh, we're hoping that doing this virtually that we will be able to reach other people in you know eastern part of the state or western part of the state that didn't have you know time or ability to to travel to Lexington or Louisville for the convention so uh, i think we're going to get some new new participants and uh don't know if we'll break the record but hey we'll give it a shot i'm rooting for you 
what are some of the things that you're kind of researching or litigating right now that are, you, might, you might call like a hot button issue in your practice area? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? Well, I know one uh, issue that we're dealing with right now from a defense side, and it's the COVID and the pandemic, a number of businesses have made claims on their insurance policies that uh, they had to close due to, you know, disease, disaster, whatever, and, and whether that policy covers uh, these losses. That's, that seems to be a pretty hot topic right now in Kentucky. Imagine. Uh, Kentucky hasn't really ruled on that. Uh, most cases from around the country are coming back on the side of the uh, defendant or the insurance company and saying, no, that the policy wasn't written to cover that type of uh, disaster or risk. Um, so that that's, that's one hot topic. I know COVID is going to be another hot topic over the, the next couple of years too. Of course, you know, uh, Congress and even the state legislatures passing some bills relating to that. So uh, that may take away a lot of the litigation. I'm not sure. Um, you know, see the med mal cases, various issues there. Um, you know, automobile accidents, it's always just tragic to, uh, to see some of these automobile accidents and, you know, how one day, you know, somebody's coming home from school or going to work and, and is killed in an automobile accident. You just, mm. it's, uh, very uh, difficult to deal with from from the family's perspective, and it's just such a freaky accident or freak of nature as to how that happens to certain people and not others. Um, so I, that's you know that's one thing about my practice. Actually, it's pretty it's pretty diverse. I don't have mm -hmm. the same issue in every case, and uh, so that's maybe helped keep my fires going too. Uh, so it's, I can't say Brad, there's any one hot topic right now. I wish I could tell you one, but it's not coming to me right now. If it is. Well, are people fighting a bunch about doing depositions over zoom? Is that, I've heard that might be something at least in the civil realm that is, yeah. is being talked about. Well, you know, we were doing video depositions before the pandemic. Now, not nearly as often. Uh, I had, I had a case uh, that had a bunch of experts getting ready to go to trial in June when the pandemic hit in March and we were just getting ready to go through our expert uh, discovery. We decided we better, we had to continue because, you know, at that point in time, we thought we had a trial end of June. So we got together, plaintiff and defendant, and, uh, you know, what we did is we disclosed each expert's file before the deposition. We bait stamped it. Everybody had it. So if you're going through, you know, the experts file uh, and you want to ask a question about, you know, bait stamp number 307, everybody could pull to it, look at it, knew what it was. Uh, and those depositions, there were, there were five or six of them really went about as well as you could, uh, could expect. 
Um, you know, some people are going to always say I'd rather be in person so I can eyeball the witness, but, and that's true, but I mean, still they went very well. Uh, and of course we were ready for trial and it got continued because of COVID, but, uh, you know, it video depositions really shouldn't be too much of an issue. You know, what I'm saying through the bar association right now, uh, really one of our most popular questions being asked is after the pandemic's over, are we going to continue to have motion hours, um, by zoom? And, you know, before the pandemic, most uh, circuit judges, uh, would not allow you to appear by video. You had to, to show up. And so a lot of people were, a lot of people driving from Louisville to Eastern Kentucky or Western Kentucky and spending, you know, three or four hours on the road, in a day for a, you know, 15 minute motion. And, uh, so we've all come to like zoom from that standpoint or standpoint. And I, you know, the answer to that question, are we going to be able to do it is it's probably going to depend upon each circuit judge if they're going to let you do that or not. But, uh, you know, candidly, I think most judges that I've talked to, even ones that didn't want to do it and reluctantly finally agreed have found, you know, this isn't that bad. And, you know, we can really, we can do it this way. And um, so I, I think it's going to, I think Zoom is going to serve some purpose in the legal community after the pandemic's over with. And I think it's going to be good uh, because I think it does save clients a lot of money. Absolutely. Uh, attorneys a lot of time. And so I, I think that part will remain. I sure hope so. It's definitely made my freed me up a lot to work on other things rather than just sitting in a motion hour or driving to a court an hour away or whatever it is. And just to continue a case like in in criminal court, you know, it's not, not as routine that we can just, you know, have the prosecutor and the defense attorney email the judge and just move something. Typically they want us to show up and explain why it needs to be moved. And I understand why there's a need for that, but, um, it's a lot easier to do that over a, a video call. I never was in the military, but a lot of the older attorneys who were used to always tell me practicing law care was a lot like uh, the military. You had to hurry up and wait. So you had to hurry up, get there, and then you just wait. And uh, so anyway, hopefully Zoom will eliminate some of that. Let's hope. Okay, now it's time for our ethical dilemma. Every month I take a few minutes out of each episode to pose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on Kentucky bar opinions and real NPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 15 minutes or 0.25 hours. Listen to all 12 monthly episodes of our podcast in a year and you'll walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credits for that year. Today's hypothetical has to do with the attorney-client privilege and duty of confidentiality after the death of the client. Tom, are you ready? Okay. All right. (laughs) The first question is, after the death of a client, May an attorney reveal information relating to the representation of the client? Well, the official answer is going to be yes, if revealing uh, that information helps to accomplish a client's uh, goal or uh, purpose that they came to see you. So if it's going to, you know, further that client's goal, purpose, whatever, then it can be revealed. Right. And, and I think, uh, 
probably a common example of that. This is not my practice, but would be, you know, if you had a, a wills and trusts practice and someone, you know, challenged the will or, or what have you, um, you know, revealing confidential information from that client about, you know, what they wanted, why they wanted, what condition they were in at the time. I think the bar opinion says that's completely fine. And in fact, the ethical thing to do is to actually reveal that information. That's correct. And we've, uh, we've had a few will contests over the years. Uh, I've done a couple, but others in the firm have done more. And, you know, oftentimes what happens is the attorney that actually did the will uh, becomes a witness to where they're not really one of the one of the advocating attorneys any longer. They're certainly still interested in the outcome, but you know some some attorneys think just because you have uh, now become a witness, you can't be an advocate. And of course, that's other ethical rules too we can get into. Um, but that's not necessarily true anymore. But you're right; that is a that's a good example of the client has died. Um, the attorney's wanting to, to prove that, you know, the client was competent, uh, knew the boundaries of his family and his property and his assets. And, uh, so oftentimes they have to, they testify to that. Uh, so that's a good example. And I could imagine it coming up a little bit in your practice. Um, you know, I've unfortunately had a number of clients pass away during pending criminal cases. And typically that's just the resolution of the case and not to be morbid, but you know, the government can't fine or imprison someone that's no longer with us. But one of the things that I have had happen is, you know, I've, I've gone to court and I've, I've told the prosecutor, uh, you know, the, he's passed away and, um, you know, we, you know, can't clean this case. And they're like, well, you know, get me some proof. And I'm like, of course, here's, here's an obituary. They're like, well, we need a death certificate. And so I'm like, well, issue a warrant for him. I don't care. <laughs> Why do we care? <laughs> but, so you can uh, get him back. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. It's fine. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you where he is. But um, <laughs> no, we've got kind of a, a weird sense of humor, I guess, in the criminal defense world. But um, that's that's the case, you know, and um, it, it does happen all too often, um, especially in my line of work. You know, we're dealing with people that do have substance abuse issues and mental health problems, you know, frequently that, that shows up in the criminal justice system. And yeah, well, that that can, that can be an issue in civil cases too, of course, in civil cases, and I'm sure it's the same in criminal, you know, if you do have a witness who's uh, ill and um, prognosis is not good, you know, we often will try to go video a deposition Mm -hmm. or, you know, take their testimony in some fashion. Uh, Sometimes it, sometimes you get there in time, sometimes you don't. Yeah. So I've had a few, civil cases that have had the same thing. You have a party dies and that's the end of the case or occasionally it can continue, but, and and if it does, then it never fails that that decedent's position somehow is presented by one of the sides uh, to the litigation. Okay. So from this same ethics opinion, you know, we talked about kind of the duty of confidentiality um, with respect to a, a, a client that's passed away. Question number two is, after the death of a client, may an attorney assert or waive the attorney-client privilege on behalf of the client? The answer is yes. 
that one makes me a little more nervous, just to be honest with you. Uh, you know, the attorney client privilege is, is pretty sacred. And, um, so I always hate to, I don't want to say wave it, but even talk about things that are protected by the attorney client privilege, because I think if you talk a little bit about it, it could open up the door for all of them. I don't think you can just talk. You can't just say, well, judge the other side just is asking me this one thing. So I'm going to give them this one thing, but I'm still arguing that it's protected by attorney client privilege. So I think you have to be a little careful there, but again, it comes back to, uh, as I say, the answer is yes. Attorney can waive it, uh, after the death, but it comes back to whether that is going to help prove the decedent's position or point, uh, or reason that they hired the attorney in the first place. Right on. And, and I read a couple, I mean, I think this is interesting from the ethics opinion, um, both the, the, from the KBA ethics opinion, it says both the attorney of a deceased client and the personal representative of the decedent have standing to assert or waive the attorney client privilege. And that's from Kentucky rule of evidence 503 C. So I guess a executor or administer administrator of an estate could, could do it also. And, um, what's really interesting is it goes on to say the personal representative and the attorney for the decedent might disagree about the attorney client privilege waiver or its assertion. And if they disagree, the court will decide who prevails. Yeah. Well, how, do, how do you respond? How does, what does that well, mean? Well, you know, I guess what you do is you have a death, uh, you have the representative appointed, uh, an issue comes up as to whether something said or done during the attorney client privilege needs to be disclosed or presented. Uh, you would go to the representative and have that discussion and say, Hey, I think we need to offer some testimony on this, or I may need to testify, or you may need to testify to what, uh, you know, your father said, or your grandfather said, or, or something like that. And I guess as long as the attorney and the representative agreed, then there's no issue. Uh, if, one disagreed, uh, then yeah, you are going to have to go to the, to the court, ask for a ruling and, uh, might be the end of your relationship anyway, if you can't agree on that, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the judge is there. If you can't agree, uh, that's what you have to do. Just submit it to the court and let the judge rule on it. And in fact, I've had a number of attorneys, um, if they are being asked to disclose confidential information, and even though they think they can do it, um, sometimes it's good to just go ask the court for an order anyway, to protect the, uh, attorney in case someone later wants to, to challenge that. Uh, or, you know, the other thing, we, I don't know if you've probably talked about this before on your, uh, podcast, but. You know, the Kentucky Bar Association does have uh, a hotline for ethics opinions if an attorney uh, finds herself in this type of situation and really doesn't know what to do. You can write and get an opinion from a, uh, an attorney that serves on that ethics committee for your district. And it's very, it's very helpful. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you still makes you a little nervous, but once you get that opinion that either, you know, supports your, your thinking or 
may be just completely the opposite of what you were thinking, but after you've thought about it and done some more research, agree with it. Um, it's just a nice thing to have in your, your file as some protection uh, for an attorney, if anything else ever comes up of it, of it at a later date. Absolutely. And I, and I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I would encourage anybody that's in any of these situations that, you know, we talk about on the show during the ethics portion. I mean, if you, if you have questions, uh, you should reach out to the ethics hotline. One particular kind of hypothetical, this is actually from a real case from Colorado that I read about in this context. It was, you know, whose property is the attorney's file after the death of the client? So there was a a husband who had, I guess, transferred some property to his daughter prior to death. And his wife ends up as administrator of the estate. And after that happens, she wants to get into the files to see why he did this, why he gave this property to the daughter instead of her. And the question was, does the attorney have to give the file to who actually owns the proceeds of the estate now? because she would have inherited it as property. And in Colorado, the trial court said no, but then the, their court of appeals said yes, and the attorney actually had to produce the file because it was considered property of the estate, which huh. is a kind uh, of an end run around the attorney-client privilege, if you think about it. Yeah, I was going to say, I would have thought if he had actually given it to his daughter and it was an appropriate gift, that it would be the daughters and the wife Um could not get it, but yeah, when you ask, you know, whose, whose file is it? Well, the simple answer, it's always the client's file. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so if an administrator of the estate comes in and says, Hey, this is my file. I want the, I want the file. I think you've got a duty to give it to them. I guess in that case, the real question is whether or not what he'd made a gift mm -hmm. before his death and who was the, legal or proper owner of the, of the file. Hmm. So it was this one court said yes. Other court said no. Huh? So, you know, yeah. kind of tough, tough for us to figure out on the ground level, uh, as a practicing attorney sometime. And that's why we have that ethics hotline, you know? <laughs> so that uh, is exactly right. Exactly. Right. Well, Tom, we've got just a couple more minutes. Um, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't? Oh, I don't know. I think we've covered a lot of ground. You know, the one thing that we're getting a lot of questions on now in the legal profession is mental health because we've had some suicides. I mean, it's, it's a proven fact that our profession is higher in, you know, mental illness and addiction and, and so forth and other professions. And so we seem to have an increased number of suicides, uh, Back when I started my presidency on July 1 of uh, 2020, I started what we call the uh, Lawyers Advocating Wellness Campaign, which we now call LAW, L-A-W. And uh, at that point in time, it was really kind of focusing on just, come on, let's, let's get off the couch, let's get out of your chair, let's go do some exercise, let's try to get everybody back in better shape. So it was a little bit more lighthearted. And then when these uh, suicides hit in uh, December and January, that focus quickly changed to more of a mental health 
uh, aspect and suicide prevention. We, our staff at the KBA has done great in digging up uh, old CLE that has uh, dealt with that topic. We've got new ones that have dealt with that topic. Uh, we've got, we had one seminar in February uh, that we had so many people, the problem was we couldn't really, the technology broke down and it's called the uh, question, persuade and report gives you what the symptoms are, what you're supposed to do and how you ultimately report. If you've got, you know, a friend or an individual that you think's under this type stress, um, we've offered that seven more times during the month of April, well, late March and April, four of the uh, seven are already filled. <laughs> and I think it's a hundred each. Uh, so you need to sign up and uh, so we can identify these signs and symptoms and and help anyone because even one more is too many. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just terrible what this puts family through. And it's just terrible that we can't get to these individuals before they do uh, take their own life. It's just, you know, it's just hard to imagine the despair uh, that these people feel. Well, I think that's, that's a good place for us to end the day. If anybody is facing those problems, you know, the bar does have resources and I know personally I'm out there to listen. I'm sure. Um, if, you know, somebody wanted to reach out to you, Tom, you would be too. Um, Absolutely. If anybody. Absolutely. And then, you know, if they'll get on the Kentucky Bar Association website, uh, there's a mental health page that has a number of, uh, you know, proper authorities that you can call for immediate assistance. And um, there's just a number of things on the, the website that can be of, of help. But uh, as you say, anybody's got any questions, any concerns, certainly feel free to pick up the phone and, and give me a call. Absolutely. Well, Thank you for your time today. Um, it's been great having you as a guest. One last question. Who should I pick on next? Who should be my next guest on the show, Tom? Next guest on the show. It's tough to top you, you know, the president, but if you've got somebody in mind, I'll, I'll reach out to him. Hmm. Uh, have you had Karen Caldwell, federal judge there in Lexington? I have not asked Karen Caldwell, the Honorable Judge Caldwell, Karen, to do the show. Karen, uh, Karen was a classmate. Uh, Karen is a, a great individual, has done a great job as a federal judge. Um, I think she'd be very interesting to uh, talk with, and I might even be glad to slip you a few questions there, Brad, <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to hit her with. But. Well, I've, uh, I appreciate that. That's a great suggestion. I'm going to add her to the potential list. I really think that's very thoughtful. Thank you. Um, but that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we'll be back again next month with another episode. I'm Brad Clark for the Kentucky Lawyer. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Brad. Enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or elsewhere. If you or someone you know would make a great guest for the show, don't hesitate to reach out to me at brad at unconvicted.com. As always, I'm Brad Clark, DUI and criminal defense lawyer in Lexington, Kentucky. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month.